Another issue in the Patterns of Care survey related to tissue testing, specifically the crucial ER and HER2 assays, and Dr. Pegram commented on some of the practical issues in this process and the potential role of the surgeon. We know that pre-analytical tissue processing is actually a very important component of the sensitivity and specificity of modern diagnostic assays that are routinely being used. So it's very important for the surgeon to communicate with the pathologist, and if they're doing a case like on a Friday afternoon, not to have the specimen stay in formaldehyde all weekend before being processed in the path lab on Monday. I just heard that from Soon Paik. Actually, it's been studied in that specimens that go in on Friday compared to Monday or Tuesday have different results? That is correct because of the inappropriate long fixation. And so that's why it's so important to have, you know, pre-analytical quality control in the OR and in pathology labs, even in the community, because really we have to have standardization in order to expect consistent results from modern diagnostic assays. You know, I'm thinking of a general surgeon out there who maybe does everything and maybe breast cancer still has breast and breast disease is maybe 20, 40 percent of their practice, or maybe they're in a community setting. You know, their friendly local pathologist who does all their other pathology is doing their ER. Or two. I don't know what's happening out there. I guess... My thought is, is it important for the surgeon to make sure that the tissue is going to go to somebody who knows how to handle it? Absolutely. It's critical. And it's not just breast tumors and breast cancer. It's all malignancies because we're using the same types of methodologies now for many of the common solid tumors. So I would say that as long as there are policies and procedures and standard operating procedures in place within various community ORs and pathology suites, then the same type of quality control can be used for all tumor types. In terms of clinical perspective, if you think about it, I guess the thing that's the scariest is having a false negative. Having a patient who is labeled as having a tumor that's ER negative, and they're really ER positive. Mm -hmm. A patient whose tumor is labeled as being HER2 negative, they're really HER2 positive because they're being deprived of biologic therapy that has huge impact on their rate of recurrence and survival. Absolutely. I mean, can you kind of put that in context globally right now? I mean, it's kind of a basic thing, but if you put it all together, what endocrine therapy, modern endocrine therapy is offering the patient with an ER-positive tumor in the adjuvant setting, and what trastuzumab is offering? In the case of trastuzumab, we know that there's a 50% proportional reduction in the relative odds of relapse with three-plus-year follow-up now. And the results are highly statistically significant. Moreover, there's a survival benefit associated with trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. And the magnitude there is about 30 to 33% improvement in survival. So those are, in absolute terms, above and beyond the best available chemotherapy. So those are very impressive results. And above hormone therapy, because all the adjuvant HER2-positive, ER-positive patients in those trials did get endocrine therapy concurrently with the trastuzumab. So and I don't think those numbers are that much different for hormone therapy. I mean, you're no. still looking at about a 50% reduction in relapse. Yes. Right? I mean, those arguably are probably even a little bit better than endocrine therapy for ER positive disease in terms of proportional reduction in relapse risk. So it's a phenomenal result. And we need to assure that all the patients who could potentially benefit from that have the opportunity to receive it. So let's talk a little bit about HER2 testing, and particularly the paper that came out a little bit over a year ago that you were a part of, which was came out of ASCO and the College of American Pathologists. It was really a landmark study. We had great stuff in there. Antonio Wolf was the lead author, but not only has algorithms, just like a lot of great stuff in there. But in any event, I guess one of the things that starts out in the beginning of the paper, just before you even get to the testing, is 
the incidence of HER2 positivity. Mm-hmm. Now, they quote around 20% of all breast cancer. Is that the number you buy? That's exactly the numbers that were published by Giovanni Pauletti in our group looking at a South Australian cohort. It was 19% by fish in that large cohort of, I believe, over 900 patients from Southern Australia. The BCIRG has also done a global study of fish during the conduct of their adjuvant trastuzumab trial. The last time I looked at those numbers, it was something like 23.4% or 24%, something in that ballpark were amplified by fish. So I think these numbers that are quoted in the paper are probably spot on. I think I use 20% when I talk about estimates of the incidence of HER2-positive disease with patients. So I think those numbers are pretty much spot on. Now, what about the issue of quality control? And that's addressed in this paper. And this has been a gigantic issue now for several years. But of course, now it's much more important because of this adjuvant situation. What's the bottom line in terms of both IHC as well as FISH? The bottom line is it's critical for surgeons, medical oncologists, you know, anybody who's caring for HER2-positive early-stage breast cancer, it's critical for you to know in your own hospital, in your own practice, what kind of methodology is being used by your pathologist, and has that methodology been validated against a standardized cohort? And that's what this paper really sets out to do, is to establish quality control standards for all community or even, you know, academic or reference laboratories so that we're all singing from the same page and using the same methods. And then and only then can you expect to get concordant results between laboratories. So the critical thing is, how are they doing the test? Are they using immunohistochemistry? Are they using fish? If they're using either one, what methodology are they using? Are they using established methodology that is in published guidelines from the College of American Pathology? Or, as we see all the time in community practice and even in academic labs, to this date we're still seeing this, are your local pathologists using some homebrew IHC assay that they like that they came up with independently? And if so, has that ever been validated against established reference tests? I think this paper really raised a lot of eyebrows, and what we're seeing now is that a higher percentage of pathology labs are conforming to these types of established guidelines. They're willing to do quality control testing in their labs and have certification by overseeing bodies and organizations who are charged with the mission of maintaining quality control in U.S. pathology labs. I think, you know, you can say to your pathologist, do you follow the guidelines as published by the ASCO CAP? Or not? And if not, why not? But in other words, CAP doesn't come out there or ask to have stuff sent in? or No, this is all voluntary. This mm-hmm. is still on a voluntary basis. And so that's why it's so critical for clinicians to know, you know what the practice is at your institution and also just to make some of the local pathologists maybe even aware that these guidelines are out there. I think the news hasn't spread everywhere yet that these are published and that it's expected that labs will start to conform to these guidelines. Now, it seemed like when these adjuvant trastuzumab studies were getting started in the beginning, that in the beginning there were problems in terms of the way the HER2, particularly in the NSABP and intergroup studies that were done, which allowed IHC, the way it was done, they were getting a whole bunch of false readings, mm-hmm. and then they kind of tried to come up with a way to get rid of it, mm-hmm. and it looked like what they were mainly focusing on is having labs that use large volume. right. But how did they solve the problem in terms of just getting good HER2 for the trials? Well, it turned out that there was a fair relationship between volume of samples and quality control with regard to HER2 testing in reference laboratories. So they got around it just by centralizing the testing so that there's not 
variation from one lab to the next with regard to which antibody they use in the IHC and how long they let it incubate with the sample and the pre-analytical processing that we mentioned before. They tried to iron all those out just by using key reference labs that have standard procedures for the types of assays that were being used. And that really smoothed out the data considerably, but it didn't eliminate all of the problems with either assay. And also, in the beginning, I kind of had this thought, well, fish is very straightforward. There shouldn't be any quality control problems there. But it seems like there were some, right? It seems like, indeed, there is a learning curve with fish as well. It is a complex technology. You're looking at the results in a dark field. I don't know if medical oncologists and surgeons really appreciate how difficult it is to isolate an area of invasive disease, maybe against a background of DCIS, for example, in the dark and tell where you are on the slide to do accurate counting of the number of hybridization signals in each nucleus. And each nucleus, you know, varies because some of the nuclei are chopped in half with the sectioning of the tumor. Moreover, the complexities of just neoplasia add a lot of difficulty into interpretation. In terms of when HER2 is done incorrectly, with either FISH or IHC, which way does it usually go, that it's called negative really positive or the reverse? I think there's arguably with IHC more commonly a problem with false positives if I had to you know, speculate as to what's more common in terms of sheer numbers. With FISH testing, it's really difficult to say because there's really no standard to measure FISH against except another laboratory who's also running FISH. There it's just, I think, more of a learning curve on I mean, how to if- do the counting. But, I mean, in terms of fish, if you have a situation where fish is read in one lab, let's say in the community, and then it comes to a central reference lab and read differently, which way does it usually go? That it was read positive in the community and it's really negative or the reverse? I have not seen solid data on Could you envision either one happening? I've seen it happen. Right. I've seen two expert pathologists from named academic institutions looking at the same sample who have disagreement because in some cases there may be focal areas of HER2 gene amplification where if you take just the simple average of all the nuclei, it may not exceed two. But sure enough, if you really look in the dark field, you'll see scattered HER2 amplified cells. And, you know, what do you call that? I mean, obviously you call it focal amplification. But a technologist who's just counting the spots and giving the pathologist numbers, and if the pathologist doesn't take the time to look themselves and really see what's going on in situ, you could really be misled. And, you know, I mentioned before the terrible situation of a patient being deprived of a therapy that might really have been helpful, but also even endocrine therapy has potential risks associated with it. So if the patient's not going to benefit, they shouldn't receive it either way. Not to mention the expense. Plus the expense, of course. And having an IV for a year. I mean, trastuzumab is not a trivial undertaking. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting here, and it relates to the case we presented to the surgeon, to everybody, onks and all, was that we presented a case of a patient who had or HER2 that was called 1 plus on IHC. And according to the guidelines, that's it. You're done. And in the survey, there were a fair number of docs, particularly in practice, who said, well, I'd fish that tumor. First of all, would you fish that tumor? I would. I mean, the key thing is for these guidelines, you know, what does 1 plus mean? And in the guidelines, it's assumed that you're doing HER2 testing by a validated IHC assay. If your assay has not been validated, then we don't know what a one. So you've got a one plus in a validated lab. Then what? You still fish it? That gives me somewhat more confidence. But personally, my practice is to fish those anyway. 
And what do we know about tumors that are IHC, let's say one plus, but fish positive in terms of benefit of trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting? You know, it happens so infrequently that the hazard ratios of those subsets in B31 and NCCTG are trending in the direction favoring trastuzumab, but the confidence limits overlap. So these are such small numbers of cases that you can't say with confidence based on, you know, clinical evidence from the adjuvant trials, whether they respond. But I think it's very likely that they do. And so it's interesting, you're on the paper, and yet you don't agree with the guideline. I think that's true. I mean, these are consensus panels. Remember, guidelines are established to define some minimum kind of floor standard. It doesn't mean that you can't do better than this. This is just the bare minimum that everyone should conform to so that we can all talk about the same types of assays. I think that I, in fact, do disagree with some of the conclusions, but when you're part of a consensus panel, at some point you have to just understand that these are really for widespread community practice, real-world conditions, and it may not be precisely what I would want to do in my own lab, for example. Interesting. So what do we know about the frequency of tumors that are IHC 1 plus but fish positive, frequency of tumors that are IHC 0 and fish positive? They're infrequent. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, especially if quality IHC assays are utilized, then... I mean, less know, than those, 5%? Yeah, the, less than 5%, I would say. What about mm-hmm. IHC zero? Would you also fish that? It depends on the clinical context, and it depends on the lab. So in the clinical context, for example, of a well-differentiated tubular carcinoma that's strongly ER positive, I'm not going to fish a case like that if they're IHC0. It fits the clinical scenario. Moreover, lobular cancers, a pure lobular that's an IHC0 or 1 plus, lobular cancers are rarely, rarely HER2 amplified. So really, the clinical context is also important in making these kind of determinations. You mentioned the issue of making sure that it's the invasive component that's Mm -hmm. looked at. And in fact, that's in the trees they put in there. They put invasive component. Absolutely. How challenging is it or how much of a problem is it to have that done correctly? Is it usually straightforward or not that straightforward? It's not that straightforward. I mean, even on H&E staining or even in immunostaining, it still takes a trained pathologist to, you know, be able to identify the invasive versus non-invasive areas. And we've all seen at tumor boards that at times that can be challenging. It can be challenging to know whether DCIS is pure DCIS or whether there might be microinvasion. I mean, this is what specialists, you know, argue about at tumor boards. So imagine taking that whole argument and then sticking it in the dark. And that's where you are with fish. So it adds yet another level of complexity to the mix, and it's a real challenge. So let's go to sort of the fish algorithm tree that came out of this paper. And it was really kind of interesting because what they say is if the fish ratio is greater than 2.2, okay, definitely it's HER2 positive. If it's less than 1.8, definitely negative. Now, the thing that's interesting is this what they call equivocal which is between 1.8 and 2.2. It is interesting. And obviously the key question is, are you going to recommend trastuzumab? Are you going to use anti-HER2 therapy? And the thing that's interesting is that what they say is that it's equivocal. They actually suggest maybe do an IHC on these patients. Yes. But that the key thing being to remind everybody that within this group, you have people who are over 2 and they would have gotten in all the four major randomized trials that showed a benefit. Mm-hmm. So if you're a kind of, I think a lot of people try to emulate or 
look at the eligibility for a trial that's critical and try to match that up to who they pick. So sure. I think the implication that comes out of this paper is if you've got 2.0 or greater, that patient would be a candidate for trastuzumab. Sure. I mean, you know, we don't want to deny treatment that might be profoundly helpful to patients that have the HER2 alteration. And these gray areas are just recognizing the simple fact that tumor biology is complex and amplification falls upon a continuum. It's not an on or off kind of situation. There can be shades of gray. And in those cases, this is the one scenario when I get one of these equivocal fish assays, that's the one scenario where I actually request an IHC assay myself, which is, for me, a bit unusual because I'm usually wanting to see the fish first. I know you're anti-IHC. Not necessarily anti. I mean, it can be complementary, and I have no objection to labs that use IHC for HER2 testing. Moreover, in some parts of the world, you simply can't get a fish test. And in that instance, the only thing available is IHC. So it's better than nothing. The other issue is, should we be considering some other modality to measure HER2 in these equivocal instances? And for example, I think it might be very interesting to take a look at these types of cases and look at the transcript, for example. And that's now possible because, for example, HER2 transcript is one of the components of the Oncotype assay. So you could do qPCR for HER2, look at HER2 messenger RNA, and maybe that would be complementary in these kind of cases. So, And it's interesting now, Oncotype's reporting quantitative ER. Yep. I don't know. Is quantitative HER2 coming down the line for Oncotype? I, I think it's coming down the line. Seems uh, like it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Although... I, th- I think that might be used more often than quantitative ER in clinical practice. I think practice. the quantitative ER is really cool. I sure. think there's a lot, you know, I mean, not to get too far off on it, but I mean, I don't know, because they just started doing that in the last couple of months, I think. That's correct. And like I thought about, for example, one of the things that gets a lot of attention in these patterns of care is anytime we present a node positive premenopausal woman with an ER positive tumor, because mm-hmm. people get, you know, should they just be sticking with tamoxifen? Should they suppress the ovaries? Should they right. give an AI and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. And to me, maybe if you see a high quantitative ER, you know, you might react one way and still ER positive, yes. but maybe on the lower end, maybe, I don't know, you think it through differently. I don't know. What do you think? I think that might be quite possible. I mean, the bottom line is the probability of responding to targeted therapy depends on the amount of the target, whether that be ER or HER2 or what have you. But for practical purposes, you have somebody who has a fish of 1.8. Uh-huh. You have somebody who has a fish of 2.0. Uh-huh. What does it mean? What do you do? The well, 2.0, I mean, you're I done? Read, I, read, I retest those with IHC because so that's you, in that equivocal zone. Okay, so yep. you retest them and their IHC is like 2 or whatever. Then it doesn't really help you. Then it's clinical judgment. So could you envision a situation where you had a fish of 2 or between 2 and 2.2 where you wouldn't use trastuzumab? I can always envision a scenario. I gave you a scenario earlier of like a lobular cancer or mm-hmm. well-differentiated tubular mm-hmm. cancers or a mucinous carcinoma. If those come up with equivocal tests like that, I'm inclined to believe that that's probably not the typical HER2 amplification scenario. And I would look at that very skeptically. If I saw a patient with a low or negative ERPR, high-grade lymphovascular invasion, some nodes, et cetera, et cetera, and it looks kind of like a HER2-positive case, and it's behaving like a HER2-positive case, then I would probably call it a duck and err on the side of treatment rather than not. Suppose it was 1.9, same exact It wouldn't situation. make any difference. You know, between that range... 1.8 to 2. You all still those ch- numbers are the same. That's the 1.8 to 2.2 is based on what the 95% confidence limit would be if you're counting an infinite number of spots. You're not going to get any more precision than that range. And so a 1.8 equals a 2.2. So final question about 
her too is you've been to a bunch of our think tanks. We had one in January. One of the participants there was Soon Paik. Yes. And he gave this presentation. I know you know the date I'm talking about because he started, or I started to see it first, was last year at ASCO and then mm-hmm. there's San Antonio and then other trials are presenting it. And we were so struck by this talk that we actually recorded on video and put it on the web to see what people right. think about. Okay. So if you want, and maybe we can talk about, you know, I'm really curious your reaction, but he goes through the whole thing A to Z. And I know you're probably familiar with all the stuff that he's done. Very. And then the think tank people were there. And I think there was some stuff that a lot of people, including me, hadn't seen. There was mm-hmm. some new stuff he presented. Yeah. And it was quite an interesting discussion. Oh, it's fascinating. And the issue is, and maybe I'd like to get your take. Obviously, the question is, he's raising the issue of, is there actually a correlation between HER2 quantitation or even the presence of HER2 or HER2 positivity mm-hmm. and benefit from trastuzumab? Mm-hmm. He's demonstrating, he says, a difference in impact, a benefit, the same benefit in 150 or so tumors that he feels are absolutely positively HER2 negative right. with adjuvant trastuzumab. You know, it's being retested, et cetera. But what I heard in the response was that an interest in actually looking at this in the adjuvant setting, it's been looked at in the metastatic setting, mm-hmm. but the question, is it different? And people there were saying, let's just test this thing in these patients. What's your take on this whole thing? I was shocked by it. The whole hypothesis is that perhaps adjuvant trastuzumab benefits even HER2 negative early stage breast cancer. That's the central hypothesis that's raised by the PEG retrospective analysis. So there are two possibilities to explain his observation of a favorable hazard ratio in samples that were retested and found to be HER2 negative according to PEG's own measurements in his lab. One possibility is that there was systematic laboratory error in the reference lab. So one possibility is all that this is spurious. After all, all those patients were judged to be HER2 positive somewhere in the NSABP. That's how they gained access to that trial in the first place. So who's right and who's wrong? That's a possibility that needs to be ironed out before we go any further down this road. Meanwhile, the other cooperative groups are trying to see if they can find any evidence in support of this data set by looking at, you know, reanalyzing their own data set. So I know that the NCCTG and the BCRG, for example, are collaborating now to pool their numbers. They'll have very large data sets to take a critical look at this, and they'll look and see if they can find a similar signal. Now, Edith Perez has looked at the NCCTG data set in isolation, and The problem with that analysis is that the results don't reach statistical significance like they did in Paik's case. But she sort of saw the the, same thing. But the hazard ratios are trending in the same direction as what. So it's in the eye of the beholder whether you believe the NCCTG data set supports the NSABP observation or refutes it. If you look at the statistics, you could say, well, it doesn't exactly add up. If you look at the hazard ratios, they are trending in a similar direction as Paik described. The other possibility, other than laboratory error, is that Paik is right and that maybe there will be some benefit by some heretofore undescribed mechanism of action of trastuzumab that works even in HER2-negative disease. Now, against that possibility is the fact that Herceptin does not work in metastatic HER2-negative disease. We have a randomized trial that proves that. Moreover, other HER2-targeted therapies don't have activity against HER2-negative disease either. At this last ASCO, we saw the first-line Taxol plus or minus lapatinib trial, which was stratified according to HER2 status. And in the HER2 positive subjects, there was a benefit of lapatinib. In the HER2 negatives, there was no evidence of any benefit whatsoever. 
So unless the mechanism of action of trastuzumab is different than other HER2-targeted agents, then we can't explain this data. Now, what mechanism could PAKE invoke? Well, one mechanism actually is in an immunologic mechanism. Right. Raphael Kleins and I just had a paper in clinical cancer research last fall where we described two new immunologic mechanisms of action of trastuzumab. One is induction of endogenous polyclonal anti-HER2 antibody responses in Herceptin-treated metastatic breast cancer cases. So these are patients who generate their own anti-HER2 antibodies after exposure to trastuzumab. The second mechanism is induction of HER2-specific T-cell responses in Herceptin-treated patients. So these are patients that had no anti-HER2 cytotoxic T-cells at baseline, but after you treat them for X number of weeks with Herceptin, all of a sudden they have T-cells that recognize HER2. So probably one mechanism is this cross-priming mechanism where the trastuzumab is opsonizing the HER2 antigen, and that may be a more efficient delivery to antigen-presenting cells, and it may display the HER2 antigen better to get better both T-cell-specific responses as well as induction of B-cell endogenous anti-HER2 antibody responses. Well, the other thing is when we talk about HER2-negative, I mean, those tumor cells do have HER2, right? They do indeed. All you know, breast epithelial cells have some HER2 protein on the cell surface. In HER2-negative, quote-unquote, breast cancer cell lines, there's usually 10 or 20,000 HER2 receptor molecules per cell, whereas in amplified cases, there's often 1.5 or even 2 million receptors per cell. Now, another point that Paik makes in this talk that he gave was the issue actually you referred to before, which is, and we talk about targeted therapy needing the target, as you mentioned, and Peg uses an example with ER. Mm-hmm. Higher the ER, greater response to hormone therapy. But another thing that he reported, and I think also not just the NCCTG, the but Hera also HERA, also was a lack of correlation of amplification with benefit from trastuzumab, which kind of seemed logical to think would be there, and yet supposedly it's not there. That's true, and it is counter to some of the observations that have been made in some of the metastatic studies of Herceptin. But I still submit that though there's no correlation when you get above a ratio of two in response to Herceptin, that doesn't mean that there might be some threshold around about two. So if you're HER2 negative, I would submit that it seems to me unlikely that you would benefit from a theoretical point of view, whereas if you're amplified, then the degree of amplification simply doesn't matter. And those data are convincing. The NSABP and HERA data on HER2 copy number and the hazard ratios from adjuvant Herceptin, those are big numbers, and it's quite striking that there's not a correlation between copy number and hazard ratio benefit from Herceptin. So do you think that, of course, I think the issue of retesting and getting more data, that has to be done, but at what point do you pull the trigger and just do a trial? It's a daunting problem because, you know, such a study would be big. I mean, it would be thousands of patients, not hundreds. So the reality is to do a trial like that, I mean, we're talking probably on the neighborhood of a $100 million investment to answer that question. I think that if you're a medical officer in charge of oncology at a big company and you make a $100 million gamble like this and lose, I bet you won't be working for that company very long. And so I think there's a lot of reasons to be tentative in moving forward with this question in the clinic until there is at least a consensus and confirmation with a repeat analysis in other groups or an independent blinded review of the PAKE data. 
No one would be more pleased than me to see, you know, trastuzumab working in HER2 negative cases. I mean, that would really make my day. But I think it's critical to follow the science, make sure that this is not a methodological fluke just in one laboratory. We have the technology to answer this question in the lab right now. That's way cheaper than doing a $100 million randomized trial. I think we should do it logically. The most expeditious route right now would be just to retest that NSABP cohort. If they retested it and got the same result, then I think we would all be lining up to enroll patients on a randomized trial for HER2-negative disease. That would be the one spark to really get it going, is if you had an independent, blinded review of that data set, that would be very impressive. And I think we should clarify, and I think this came out at the think tank, although there was a huge interest in this whole issue that I don't think anybody's saying that off-study right now people should consider using trastuzumab in a HER2-negative situation. Absolutely not. I think that, you know, this is a retrospective subset analysis, hasn't been confirmed until the New England Journal letter a few weeks ago. It wasn't even in print yet, so it's absolutely not ready for prime time. So another thing that I thought was kind of interesting is we asked some sort of basic questions about potential issues or side effects or toxicity with trastuzumab. And of course, the big one is the potential for cardiac problems. And it's interesting, again, we see that when we ask the surgeons, you know, what's the incidence of the risk of heart failure with an anthracycline, without an anthracycline, Mm -hmm. the numbers of the people who answer are pretty good. And with anthracycline, you know, three, four percent or so. That's spot on. Without anthracycline is one, you know, they say three percent, it's a little bit high. 0.4 in the BCRG data set. But the thing that's interesting is how many people say that they don't know. So now 60 percent. So, and I think it highlights the fact that this is a new issue in early breast cancer. What do we know right now about this issue of heart problems with trastuzumab and trastuzumab chemotherapy? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that it exists. It's a problem. I mean, there are discontinuations of the drug during the one year of adjuvant trastuzumab. There's a fraction of patients who never even qualified to get it in the first place because their ejection fractions drop after the first four cycles of an anthracycline. We have no long-term follow-up safety data on these subjects whatsoever. What's perhaps somewhat disturbing is the long-term follow-up that we do have from the BCIRG. And when I say long-term, it's relative. We don't have a decade, but we do have data out to about 900 days. And there are persistent, measurable declines, however subtle, of EF that are statistically significantly lower than baseline in patients who have both anthracycline and trastuzumab. Now, is it okay to lose three or four percentage points on your ejection fraction if you're asymptomatic? Maybe it is. If you just take a flight of stairs, then you probably get that number back up into the, you know, whatever the baseline range was. But we don't know long-term if those four percentage points is going to translate to a higher incidence of late cardiac complications after anthracyclines. So this is a very major issue. I think the late effects of anthracyclines have been underestimated and underreported by oncologists as a community anyway. If you look at the data now coming out from MD Anderson and other groups that have looked at this and children that are exposed to anthracyclines and anthracyclines used even in other diseases, you see a higher number of late complications than we ever really expected. And so this could really be an important issue in the future. And I think the wave of the future is very likely to be non-anthracycline trastuzumab-based regimens. And we are really starting to see that in our patterns of care studies, a major shift. Although there's still a lot of investigators in our last think tank, there's still, I would say, more that still use anthracyclines, although there are definitely a lot more people talking about it. The regimen a lot of people talk about is TCH that you mm-hmm. guys studied in the BCRG. TCH is going to be approved by the FDA, I believe, this week. 
So it'll and be in the package uh, insert. So that's docetaxel, taxotere, carboplatin, and trastuzumab. Mm-hmm. There are other non-anthracyclines that are being talked about. There's another TCH where right. instead of using cytoxin, right, they switch to cytoxin, but whatever. Yep. Now, the bottom line is when you do that with trastuzumab and a patient says to you, okay, what's the risk they're going to have a cardiac problem compared to not doing anything? Mm-hmm. How do you answer? Well, I tell them the congestive heart failure risk from the studies that are quoted TCH had a symptomatic congestive heart failure risk of 0.4% as opposed to AC followed by TH, which was on the order of 3 to 4%. And those differences were statistically significant. Now, another thing that's kind of interesting is we asked about a couple of questions that would be very well known to oncologists. But again, trastuzumab up to now has been metastatic disease. So I don't know if the surgeons are seeing their patients get it. Mm-hmm. So for example, we said, does trastuzumab cause alopecia? And actually, almost half of the surgeons said, I don't know. Of course, it doesn't cause alopecia. And then we also asked them, does it cause nausea and vomiting? And again, over 40% said they don't know. And of course, the answer is that it doesn't. I guess the bottom line is, in terms of quality of life, it's an antibody. There's a bunch of antibodies out there right now. But it seems like the major issue is having to come in and get an infusion, risk of heart disease. Is that pretty much it? Infusion reactions? Sure. You know, there are rare adverse events that have been reported with trastuzumab, and those would happen with the same frequency, I'm sure, in an adjuvant population as have been reported in the metastatic series that are published. But I think surgeons, you know, they'll become more comfortable with it now that they are starting to see their patients in follow-up. I suspect that many times when surgeons see a patient in follow-up who might be getting adjuvant trastuzumab, except for the presence of the portacath, the surgeon might not otherwise know that they're on it because they'll largely see that for most of the patients, they don't feel anything. And of course, early on, though, they're going to get chemo. Of course, that sure. very, may very well cause these other problems. But then the mm-hmm. chemo stops. Right. And then for the rest of the year, they get the trastuzumab alone. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that's really interesting, kind of reflecting back on what's happened. You know, we've been doing these patterns of care studies for a long time. And it's really interesting. Up until the trastuzumab studies, we would present cases. So like, here's one case, for example, we presented mm-hmm. in February 2005, three positive nodes would you offer trastuzumab off-study? Virtually everybody said no. Mm-hmm. We could present 10 nodes, and I can tell you back mm-hmm. then people would not do it. Right. Then the trastuzumab data comes out at ASCO that year, boom, within a few weeks, people changed their practice. Yeah, how about, was, how about the following Monday morning? The following I mean, Monday morning. I, I think I saw of, people making cell phone calls in the back right. of the hall. What do you think about this issue? When do you bring something into the adjuvant setting? Depends on the magnitude of the benefit and the therapeutic index of the drug. Is it well-tolerated, et cetera? Is it inexpensive? These sorts of issues. Clearly, if the magnitude of the benefit is truly extraordinary, clinicians are not going to wait on the sidelines for the New England Journal paper to come out before they change their practice. On the other hand, when treatment effects are subtle, you know, the difference between an aromatase inhibitor and tamoxifen, you know, no survival difference in the attack trials, subtle differences in relapse-free survival. That's a different story. There, I think clinicians are usually wise to wait on the sidelines, wait for it to be subject to peer review, wait for guidelines to come out. All that is fine because when we jump into treatments based on abstract presentations, we get burned. I mean, look at the bone marrow transplant era. That's what can happen if we're not paying attention and being mindful of, you know, how crucial it is to get randomized controlled phase three data, its quality, and then subject to peer review, 
before making practice changes. But you know, when I used to interview people before that historic ASCO meeting, they always brought up the bone marrow transplant thing. But bone mm-hmm. marrow transplant is not a benign therapy, obviously. Right. And there really wasn't that great data in metastatic disease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I had thought a lot that once the cardiac data for trastuzumab came out, which was like a year or two before, that's when I started to think, hmm, I wonder. I'll give you a situation I think is analogous. It's really interesting, mm-hmm. which is the EGFR mutation positive patient in non-small cell lung cancer right, right. now, where you know with an EGFR TKI in metastatic disease, these people have high response rates, yep. higher than trastuzumab yep. as a a single agent and yet the lung people go well we need phase three trials and there are trials and i'm thinking you know if i'm a non-smoker with non-small cell right now i'd be thinking about taking erlotinib i'll take my chance with erlotinib thank you very much right anyhow it's, i guess it's a question that doesn't have a definitive answer the regulatory financial issues but it's just i think in the era of more and more targeted therapy you know moving down the line this is going to come up I think, repeatedly. We're seeing it in real time. I mean, look at how the deliberations with regard to the recent approval of bevacizumab for metastatic breast cancer. I mean, it was a very difficult decision. Contentious issues were raised, and it's not entirely clear. In that case, there was not a clear-cut right or wrong answer. And I think you just have to present the evidence to the patient and let them weigh in on the decision. Are they impressed by that data or not? Right. No survival benefit, but a substantial PFS benefit. You right. know, Should that have been approved? I hate for a federal authority to tell me how I should practice, so I'm loath to have them reject it. On the other hand, I was using it anyway because of the compendium listing for bevacizumab and metastatic breast cancer. So, in fact, it really didn't change my practice, whether or not the regulatory authorities blessed it or not in the first place.